we're back with another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando cast. And joining me today via the power of Squadcast. Oh my you've goodness. You've seen her on Orange is the New Black. You've seen her on Arena 911. Terriers, fucking every show on the planet. She is an actor, a writer, a showrunner, and someone who makes money with her fucking creative skills. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, joining me today. It's none other than your friend and mine, Jamie Denbo. That is such a good description. I make money with my fucking creative skills. That's all I'm going to say now. Because uh, you know what I mean? I, it just feels like it sounds better than like, oh, you're an actor? What have you been in? And it's like, I've been in one episode of everything good and everything bad. That's everything that's shitty and everything that's fairly decent. One episode you've seen. And I can't let, tell you which one. Let me just, let me ask this question. Let me just say that you have taken your lovely children to Jenny's Ice Cream on Larchmont. And you're walking around. If anyone stops you ever, yeah. what do they stop you for? They would stop. That's really funny because there is a guy who works at Jenny's Ice Cream on Larchmont who immediately knew me because of my old uh, comedy show we're on it in Beverly because he was a huge fan of that show and of that act. And he occasionally, sorry, Jenny would give me a free ice cream. And when he is working there, he sometimes still will. Um, but he uh, is a lovely guy named Alex. And uh, yeah, typically I would get recognized for, for Beverly from my voice. I'm so non completely unrecognizable. I've never been recognized by a stranger for anything I've ever done except for Beverly. So, and that's again, usually a vocal thing. Okay, for the people playing along outside the city of Los Angeles, you must know that Jenny's Ice Cream, I don't know, is it the only ice cream store in the country that has $20 ice cream cones? Um, it is no, so- no, because there's a salt and straw across the street, which has $25 ice cream cones. So it's also a fucking ripoff, which by the way, I go there out of convenience. I am a Hagen Doss or Baskin Robbins bitch. Like bring me the simple or fucking do thrifty out of the right aid. Like let's do that. You know, I, I can't even so. thrifty out thrifty out of the right aid is my gym. I think they have the best chocolate chip ice cream uh, on the planet. <laughs> I am all about cheap, real ice cream. I don't want your fucking gelato. I don't want your, and you know what the other problem with all, all fancy ice cream is they don't believe in chunks. They only believe in flakes. They believe in like whenever they put any sort of like, you know, substance, like a chocolate chunk or a nuts or whatever, it's like they grind it into a powder or a paste and then they mix it in to flavor the ice cream. It's like, I know I want the chunks. I want my teeth. I want to use my teeth. And they don't ever let me use my teeth. So fuck expensive <laughs> ice cream. I'm over it. Over it. Okay. So, uh, uh, so join me in saying mm. fuck you McConnell's. Fuck. Uh, fuck you, McConnell's big time. Yes. Fuck you, Salt and Straw. Fuck you, Salt and Straw. Fuck you, Grom. <laughs> oh, no, wait, wait. I don't know that one. Oh, what Grom is, that is a one? West Side situation that I hope the pandemic murdered. I hope the coronavirus like snuck into Grom and took everyone down that ever okay. has been in one. Is Grom on Abbott Kinney in Venice? Of course it is. I don't know. It's worse. It's like in whatever that very fancy mall, outdoor mall is in Malibu. It's just a joke. Get it the fuck out of there. It makes me insane. Okay, but Alex at Jenny's gets a pass because he Because has- he loves me and gives me free ice cream. I dare. I said it again. Jenny, I'm sorry. Don't fire Alex. We pay for all the kids' ice cream. So there you go. 
And I'm sure you've been there a time or two. I have. It's the closest ice cream. It's out of sheer convenience. I'm throwing money at the ice cream problem, but it's not what I would prefer. Okay. As long as we're talking about the village of Larchmont, Mm -hmm. let me just say to you that I just read on Twitter.com that Village Pizzeria is in danger of closing for good. Uh, And everyone really should come together and not, and make sure that doesn't happen. By the way, I'm a little confused as to how that is happening. Pizza is primarily a takeout business and they have been thriving during the pandemic. So I am, I don't know if this is a boost for more, but it can't be going anywhere. Okay. This is what I have been told. I have it on high authority. I know for a fact that everyone's rents along Larchmont are just going up and up and up. They're absolutely absurd. My friends, my, I have two great friends that I do my serious XM show with uh, Richard Chilting and Ahmed Zappa. They inquired about a space directly across the street from village pizzeria mm-hmm. to possibly put a record store in like a cool guy, record store as there should be. Here's why there isn't one because the the person who owned that space wanted 14 grand a month in rent. Can I ask you a question? How, how can anyone request that amount of money for basically what is essentially in a, a small apartment for that you put a store in? It is that is absolutely it should be illegal. I hate everyone. The world is on fire. Like I immediately go to we're all going to die when you tell me that. Okay, well, here, the next level of that, I think part of the reason why is they want to scare everyone away because I also have it on good authority that they want to turn that east side of Larchmont Boulevard, across the street from Jenny's, across the street from Village Pizzeria, into high-end retail and condo on the two levels above. Okay, I hate all every word that you just fell out of your mouth hole. I hate yes. every one of them. Yes. I hate it. Kids. I don't even understand what that means. High end retail. High end retail. Fuck that. I fuck you. I can't. I cannot. And condos. And condos on top of the stores. Everything Jeez. hurts. Jeez. <laughs> okay. And thanks for listening to another you know episode. What we really of need? <laughs> hey, you know what we really need is we need for what honestly we need the Scientologists to come in because they're the ones who own all the shitty real estate on Hollywood Boulevard. That's why Hollywood Boulevard isn't high end retail or condos because the Scientologists own it all and charge the keychain brokers and lingerie salesmen like $5 a month so that they can keep it seedy. So people will fall, fall in the gutters drunk and find Scientology in there. Like they keep the several well-maintained gorgeous Scientology buildings as these beacons of hope at either end. So if you're listening, Mr. Cruz, Mr. Travolta, Ms. Alley, uh, Bodie Elfman, uh, come to Larchmont, uh, set up your kiosk and let's keep all the businesses that are already there. Just fine. There, that's my public service announcement. Your friend, Brendan also knows that in one of those Scientology buildings on Hollywood Boulevard, there is a prison. There's a Scientology prison I'm not joking you. you there is a there's a Scientology prison what? for high-end executives who get the hankering to leave. Nope. And if nope. anyone finds out that they want to step out, they get called in front of a board in what? one of those buildings. And then they end up living in a prison for two to three to four years. And I'm so not joking. I know you're not joking, but I my understanding was that the 
I, what I believe they're called rehabilitation centers exist and inhabit the gold base between Los Angeles and, and, uh, and Palm Springs. I have done deep. I am, I am very in tune with Miss Leah Remini. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I enjoy the remnanting. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the reminiscing, the reminiscing that she does and the rendering. Anyone, by the way, this is the most LA conversation that anyone's ever had, which really sucks for anyone who loves Brendan and loves to hear his stuff about other places. But here's what I'll tell you Los Angeles has nothing but overpriced ice cream, terrible rents, and Scientologists. And why are we here? I don't know. I think because we got here before those things took over. I well, I'll tell I'll tell you why we're here today. Okay. We're here today. Uh, because today on the BrandoCast, we have one of the great comic minds in the city of Los Angeles, and we're going to talk about someone who I'm going to admit to the world that I love. For the first time, for the first time in 45 years, yes, America, Brendan Smith loves fucking Billy Joel. And you can take that and shove it if you want to throw that back in my face. That makes me so happy to hear because it is it is such a basic bitch fucking thing for me to have chosen Billy Joel. And I am, I acknowledge it. I own it. I I take it and I don't care. I'm 47. I don't give a shit what anyone thinks, but for years it was a shame. It was a Shonda. I carried this deep shame. So thank you for, for uh, admitting that you too enjoy an occasional Billy Joel song. Okay. Well, I'm going to say this. Yes. Jamie, when I reached out to Jamie about doing the show and I said, what are some of the artists that you enjoyed as a young person? Cause that's kind of where I want to go with the Brando cast. She threw out the name Billy Joel, and all of a sudden, I just remember my second grade teacher, Mrs. Scrow, who was a gorgeous Italian woman teaching school at St. Bernard's in Mount Lebanon, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She loved Billy Joel, and because I love Mrs. Scrow, I love Billy Joel, too. And when I was putting the show together today, I just realized, like, holy fucking shit. Talk about a man who's written a bunch of hit songs. So here we go. William Martin Joel, born May 9th, 1949, is an American singer-songwriter, composer, and pianist. Commonly nicknamed the Piano Man after his first major hit and his signature song of the same name, he had a massive career as a solo artist since the 1970s. Joel is one of the best-selling music artists of all time, as well as the sixth best recording artist and the third best selling solo artist in the United States with over 150 million records sold worldwide. Billy Joel was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999. And you know, I will say something, Jamie. You know, you don't always have to be number one. Sometimes it's okay to be number six. Yeah, oh, 100% yes. That's how I live my my day-to-day aspirations are level out at about a six. Um, Okay, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania fucking loves Billy Joel. Oh, yeah. As if he was born there. Where is it near Allentown? Uh, Allentown is closer to Pittsburgh, but it's all the fucking same. It's all the same Irish, German, and Italian people working in mills. Yep. And and he he fucking hit them like a like a neutron bomb. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, just outside the uh, great American city of Boston, Massachusetts. I, being a uh, northeast a nor'easter Jew, uh, <laughs> Billy Joel was sort of an indoctrinated thing. Like you had to like Billy Joel. Turns out I did, so it worked out. 
Um, cause to me it was like, it was like rock that sounded like musical theater anyway. So I was like, okay, great. This is great. I can like this music. Um, and being that I'm a nor'easter Jew, Jew girl from that area, I went to a overnight camp for eight weeks at a time, uh, which was the best part of my childhood. And, um, Billy Joel was just the soundtrack. It was just the soundtrack to every summer. And we had songbooks and, they were full of like typical camp songs. They were, they were full of like, you know, um, all the seasons in the sun and turn, 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 you know, all the hippy dippy stuff. And then all the Billy Joel songs. So we all sang as a giant camp. We sang piano man. We sang just the way you are. We sang everything that we, every, Billy, it was constant. I had a boyfriend at camp who made a mix tape, but that was not just a mix tape of Billy Joel. It was a mix. It was a clip mix. So it was clips of Billy Joel songs on the tape. Um, so it was just a, probably just a really loving, I found him to be very soothing. Um, his, his music is, and it continues to be very, very soothing for me. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a Boston girl. I'm fucking Boston. Okay. Maybe. Where, where was, was camp in New Hampshire or Maine? Well, it was or in West New Hampshire. It was in New Hampshire. <laughs> um, it was Southern New Hampshire, just across the Massachusetts border. It was, um, part of the, uh, Eli and Bessie Cohen foundation camps which were Jew camps and it was uh, camp Tel Noah. And um, I'm from Swampscott, Massachusetts was where I grew up, which is a, a horrible name, but it's borders Salem. It's like right next to Salem, which people know better. Okay. So, so some Jewish folks settled next to Salem, not, not, not freaked out by uh, the, the bad juju right there. Well, um, different kinds of witches uh, were the Jews. Um, here's what, here's what I think is very interesting to, to people or, or inter- I found to be interesting is that I'm going to let everybody know the Jews, we're everywhere. We are everywhere. You can't avoid us. We are, uh, we're around and we're, you know, I mean, we are basically in the, in the outskirts, in the nicer neighborhoods of every metropolitan, like suburban, suburban metropolitan area, we will find us. That is where we call our home. Now they had the Jews in the North shore of Boston kind of migrated there from, well, it kind of goes, what was it? It's like, it goes, uh, the Irish and Italians, then they move out and then the black people come in. No, the Jews come in and the black people come in and then the Puerto Ricans come in. That's the Northeastern, uh, progression of neighborhoods. Um, I hope that doesn't sound racist. It's just what it is. In, in LA, it's the Korean substitute Puerto Ricans for the Koreans. Um, it's just sort of the migration. <laughs> pattern, right. So, um, the Jews and ultimately, by the way, everybody chases everybody else out. I mean, there is white flight for sure. Um, but the Jew flight sort of follows, I guess the white flight cause we're white, we're whiteies. Um, which is always an interesting conversation around Black Lives Matter with uh, hardcore Jews. They're like, we're not really white. And I'm like, yeah, we're in America. We're, we're white. We're the white people. We're the bad guys. We need to accept that we are part of the problem. So, well, yes. growing up in gr- growing up in Pittsburgh in the 70s, uh, Pittsburgh is similar to Boston in that in the 70s, it was, you know, mid-century Pittsburgh is Germans live here, Polish live here. Yep. Irish live here. Yep. The Jewish ghetto in Pittsburgh was Squirrel Hill, which is right by Carnegie Mellon University. So what was the predominantly Jewish? It still is. It's yeah. Still so what was Jewish, that what, yeah. was, what was that neighborhood in Boston? Um Newton. Newton and Brookline, which are still very um very Jewish. But like the one the Jewish people who lived in the areas of like Chelsea, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, those Jews moved to the North Shore. 
so they all, all their grandparents grew up and like lived in a sort of like, uh, Eastern and North of the city. Um, and then moved out, but yeah, we're everywhere. Yo, they're going to find a synagogue anywhere. So speaking, um, speaking of Jewish grandparents, let me just do a quick tangent and give a plug to people listening to the podcast because on Netflix right now, there is a documentary called the last resort, which is fuck fucking tremendous. It's about Miami beach before Miami beach was cool. And it really chronicles Mm-hmm. The place that was the Jewish haven for all the Zetas and all the all grandpa pods, all the boobies. So sixties and seventies, they oh, yeah. owned Miami Beach and well, before it, it fell into hard times. So wait, what's it called? The last resort? I'm dying. It's called the last, it's called the last resort. And oddly, there were two young Jewish dudes who, starting in the sixties or the at the very beginning of the seventies, realized like this is kind of historic what is happening here. What is happening here? All these all these Holocaust survivors that came to Miami Beach to live, all these grandparents from all over the country who came to live, all these people from New York who came to live and just get a little shitty apartment and be near the beach and party a lot and hang out and play cards and it was it was festive and vibrant and so these two young photographers decided to take photos. One took photos in black and white, the other took photos in color. And I think that, you know, for those folks out there who have Jewish grandparents who did that, you'll start crying because the photos are ridiculous and it really captures a place in time in America that's gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember my grandparents like that was they went to they went to Miami Beach. I mean, and they lived actually their their place where they used to stay was in Hollywood, Florida, which is right near Miami Beach. And then there was Delray Beach. Like, it, it, yeah, it was huge. That was like a huge thing. If you watch the, the original movie, The Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin and um, what's her face? Sybil Shepard. Um, is that what it? Oh, and, and uh, Jeannie Berlin. When they're just like, we're going to Miami Beach. Like it was this big, crazy. It's an amazing movie. I remember. A well, bit. then you'll you'll dig Last Resort because th- there's so there, it's so completely rich. And I'm not going to ruin anything by talking about it because you just you have to see the images that were captured during this period of time. Mm. And and again, this is before the drugs come in in the 80s. Oh yeah. Um, and you know the Holocaust survivors that all they have to do is see each other on the street and they oh. fucking know. They just have to look down in the uh, arm and they see the yes. tattoo. And it's nothing like, gets Jews more excited than talking about the Holocaust, and I do mean that both in the uh, in a funny way and in a very serious way, but also in a very funny way because my I feel very strongly about this that children born in the seventies, like myself, uh, have earned very much the right to laugh loudly at all things Holocaust related because we were so traumatized by the images we were presented so young. Like I I think about it all the time. I think about how, how I just remember seeing, you know, people in barracks and starving skeletons walking around in front of crematorium before I knew math, you know? (laughs) uh, And I think about that because I think about my children who are now 10 and 13, who are just starting to learn about the Holocaust. I wouldn't, I, I don't remember not knowing about the Holocaust. I knew about it in kindergarten. Anyway, speaking of Holocaust, uh, well, it, it's, it's kind Bell, of amazing. I believe is a, a half Jew. Well, <laughs> we, 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 claim, we claim him as one of ours. Well, well, he looks like a Jew. Sure does. With them hooded eyes and them sneaky, sneaky short, short way. And the way he plays them keys. Oh, uh, I'm going to have her note. I'm going to have to cut that out. Okay. (laughs) 
Billy Joel was born in 1949 in the Bronx, and he grew up on Long Island, both places that influenced his music. Growing up, he took piano lessons at the insistence of his mother. After dropping out of high school to pursue a musical career, Joel took part in two short-lived bands, The Hassles and Attila. He kicked off his solo career in 1971 with his first release, Cold Spring Harbor. In 1972, Joel caught the attention of Columbia Records after a live performance of the song Captain Jack became popular in the city of Philadelphia. Joel then signed with Columbia and released his second record, Piano Man, in 1973. I would imagine that uh, Camp Toramit... Tell Noor, but super close. Camp Tell Noor? Yep. Camp, Camp Atsheva? Yep, that one. Okay. Camp I, would imagine that, that, I would imagine that Camp, that uh, Piano Man may have been played at that camp. Oh, God, yes. And actually, I love, I love the Cold Spring Harbor record. It is so um, simple and raw, and uh, it's really beautiful. Um, and I believe... She's Got Away is actually on that. I think he re-recorded that later, but um, it's it's a really beautiful record. She's got a way about her I don't know what it is But I know that I can't live without her She's got a way of pleasing I don't know what it is but there doesn't have to be a reason anyway. It's very simple, very piano heavy, and he sounds so different. I mean, he sounds so, his voice changed so much over the years, but I loved that record, uh, cassette um, at the time. What other records do you remember being a part of your childhood? I always feel like it's the records that we start buying at 12, 13, 14, mm-hmm. when we have our own allowance money and we can walk into the record store and buy what we want. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what some of those early records were for you? I sure do. Again, we're going to go real basic bitch here. Um, Thriller. Uh, I had Michael Jackson Thriller, and I had his. I had. I took the inside of it, and I spread out the poster on my wall so that I could sleep with Michael and his. Like I believe it was like a pet leopard or tiger or puma, something that we would all curl up together every night. Me and young Michael. Um, Too bad I was not a little boy, or we really would have gotten close. which leads me to also say, just for the record, my big um, my big thing is I'm. Hold on, I'm I'm not going to eat that right now. I'm, oh, the, you the, get I don't care. I'll I'll, I'll get it after. You I can came eat. with it. I came with it. My heart was in the right place. No, I appreciate that, but it's okay. I'm I'm gonna wait. Sorry. Um, I hate the pandemic. I hate it. Um, that was a surprise appearance by your husband, John Ross Bowie, bringing in my Postmates, which was very. <laughs> Um, I forget what I was saying. Oh, you were back I, oh, to Michael what Jackson. What I was about Michael Jackson? If I could just, just a word to anyone who's like, I can't believe those mothers would like allow their kid to go sleep at Michael Jackson's house. Let me be very, very fucking clear. If Carol Denbo and I had run into Michael Jackson, like at the North Shore shopping center, and he was like, your kid's like really talented. Can I have her for a while? Carol would have been like, of course, Mr. Jackson, here's my number. Use it or don't. Like there's no question. If, if it had been Joan London 
or from from Good Morning America. It doesn't even have to be Michael Jackson. That's how exciting it would have been to have a celebrity be like, you stay with me. Okay. I just can't. It makes me mental. Anyway, back then, we didn't know. We didn't know. We did not know at all. No. We had no idea, even when it was happening right in front of us. Oh, he brought some kids to the movie premiere. Plain That's sight. so cool. Plain sight. He was sort of a genius. I got to give that to him. It was a really good move. Um, <laughs> slick move. Not a good move. A slick move. Um, I um, I had... Uh, uh, I used to listen to the Flashdance soundtrack over and over and over again. She's a maniac, maniac on the floor. Um, I used to listen to, um, I mean, we are going, we're going vinyl here. You know, I was, my, it was mostly my parents' vinyl collection. They did have Jesus Christ Superstar, which I found weird in my home, but I liked it. Uh, Annie, it's, this is not cute. But I, and then, you know, once I discovered uh, Godspell, actually, I took Godspell, the vinyl record, out of the Swampscott Public Library. And I loved it. I don't know. Maybe I was sort of mentally connecting to the comedic stylings of Eugene Levy and, Gilda Radner being that they did Godspell in Toronto before they did Second City Toronto. Had no idea at the time. Um, but something about that show, which is interesting because Stephen Schwartz, really, his composing is so piano-based and very similar to Billy Joel in some ways. I don't know. I have a sound I like, and it's really just an old, upright, slightly out-of-tune piano, I think. Well, I th- you said it. It's it, Some of Billy Joel's music is musical theater. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, that's a fucking Broadway play. I think one of the highlights of my life was in my performing career was when I was doing Rana and Beverly, we interviewed Jack Black on stage. And for some reason we, we, I don't remember what led up to it. I don't know if there is a video proof of it or recording anywhere, but we, we wound up like bursting out into scenes from an Italian restaurant and we sang the whole thing together. And it was definitely like, maybe I don't, I don't, I, I could just go die now. That was that was a highlight. So yeah, I uh, I have the uh, people who've listened to this podcast before have heard me mention this, but I'm just going to say it again. Uh, some of my best nights in LA were doing karaoke with Jack Black at the Brass Monkey uh, and Amagi's before he was famous uh, at Amagi's on Sunset and Gower, and uh, we would go together and we would sing our fucking brains out and sing metal. And there's actually a picture of Jack talking to the owner of the brass monkey right in the door. And I'm standing right behind him <laughs> talking to somebody else. That's Love the that. only picture that exists of Brendan Smith in the brass monkey in <laughs> Koreatown. <laughs> After launching the albums street life serenade in 1974 and turnstiles in 76, Billy Joel released his critical and commercial breakthrough record, The Stranger, in 1977. This album became Columbia's best-selling release to that date, selling over 10 million copies and spawning several hit singles, including Just The Way You Are, Moving Out, Only The Good Die Young, and She's Always A Woman. Scenes from an Italian restaurant is one of Joel's favorites and has become a staple of his live show that's also on that record the album won two awards at the 1978 grammy awards winning record of the year as well as song of the year for just the way you are 1978 oh i think that was the last good year of my life (laughs) 
I was five, so probably mine too. Actually, no. I I was eleven. I'm born in '67, so so like I said before, now I'm starting at the age of 10, 11, 12. Now I'm starting to put things together and decide what I like rather than just what's on the pop hits, you know, that my parents were listening to. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I but mean, Mrs. Scro, Mrs. Scro had The Stranger, and I remember holding that record in our classroom and wanting to bond with her, one of my first adult crushes. Uh, her dad owned a huge restaurant in Pittsburgh called Scro's. Uh, I think I, I probably held the record and went like, uh, I think this is probably Billy's uh, finest work to date, Mrs. Scro. That's really cute. Kind of pathetic. <laughs> well, she was one of the, Mrs. Scroll was one of the only non nuns at St. Bernard's in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, oh, where I, or Mount, which is the little suburb of Pittsburgh that I grew up in. Uh, she was yeah. one of the only non nuns as a teacher. I mean, for me, it was like nuns, even though, you know, my area was so heavily Catholic and Irish and Italian, I, I, I to me, it was like, you know, you, you, when you describe that, I immediately think of sound of music. Like you're just in a convent and that's where you are. I just, that's how I imagine it. <laughs> so it seems like it was nice and very, you have scenic, very scenic. You have mentioned some, you have mentioned some musicals. Did you get into musical theater? Was that I, lo- I love musical theater. You I did. I, yeah, I did. I used to do most of the shows at camp. Camp was real formative. Um, but I did some, local theater type stuff when I was growing up. Yeah, I did. I, um, yeah, that was my thing. You know, I wasn't into sports at all. And I, you know, New England is, if you're not into sports, you're, you're fucked. You're fucked. You're really fucked. I mean, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was a little, a little odd, but, um, yeah, I mean, I loved it from the time I was little. That was what I loved. Did you get to go see live musical theater? I in did. Broadway? My parents were very good about that. Whenever anything came through Boston, we went to see it. Uh, yeah. So we saw, I mean, we saw everything. We saw Les Mis and we saw Phantom and Falsettos and The Wiz. Like, I remember seeing all these in Boston. And so that was great. And, you know, we, didn't, we went to New York once. I remember we went to New York when I was about eight years old. And it was my dad's birthday. So it was January. It was freezing. Um, and we saw we saw Dreamgirls, which was the probably the original cast with Jennifer Holiday. Which again, I've lost I don't know how many people who have listened to your podcast who have turned it off by now. But if you're still listening, you're really going to turn it off after I tell you that we were in the nosebleeds and I saw Jennifer Holiday, um, which was a big deal, and that blew me away. And then we saw Little Shop of Horrors, the original cast, which was fucking great because that show was also when it was first run off Broadway. It was in a small theater. So you really were much closer, you know, we, they must've bought their half price tickets at TKTS, whatever it was then God bless whichever one of my parents, I assume my father stood out in sub zero weather to get half price tickets. But, um, it, that was fantastic. So that blew me away. I was like, I want to be Audrey. I just want to be Audrey again. There goes your audience. Yeah. Did your high school ever try to pull off Jesus Christ Superstar or Godspell or no, Oklahoma or anything. Guys and Dolls. And what else? What was the other musical we did? We didn't have huge musicals at my high school. It was weird. It was a small high school and it sucked because Marblehead, which was our, which was the nice, slightly nicer, slightly more affluent town to the north, they had an amazing theater program. And I really was jealous. I was like, that's where I want to be. But yeah, most of my theater stuff I did at camp. 
So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, you know, it's and, at Japan, any- <laughs> yes, yes. I know what you're going to ask. And <laughs> were, yes. were you guys, were you guys did Fiddler on the Roof? Hilariously, no. Um, although that would have made more sense actually, now that I think about it. Uh, no, we did like, we did a chorus line where of course, like I was Morales because I guess the loudest Jew at Jew camp is the Puerto Rican one. I don't know. Um, (laughs) we did, um, we did guys and dolls again, did a lot of guys and dolls. Mm. Um, we did a really weird one called the robber bridegroom, which was actually quite good. We did Pippin. Oh, this is getting so boring for people. Anyway, yes, but yes, I no, do lots of musicals. I love I love doing musicals. I loved it. Okay, last question. Last question on musicals. If someone came to you tomorrow, if someone called you tomorrow and said, "We got a fucking amazing musical," would you do a musical as an adult? Hundred percent. Yes. Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. I, I'm here for you. I'm old enough to be Mrs. Lovett, y'all. For those of you Kassanheim people, you know what I'm talking about. Your bitch is here. And by the way, I put on some pandemic pounds. So bring me Angela Lansbury's parts, all of them. God, uh, just quick tangent, pandemic pounds. Yep. Uh, I, it's, there was the, the, the freshman 15 and for me, the pandemic 20. I, w- I, I, I just don't even want to know what to do anymore. I've given up. I've said this on the podcast before. I, I, I have given up. I, you know, okay, uh, great, good. Wait, yeah. Why wouldn't you? I mean, what's the? Well, well, I live in Los Angeles, where it's illegal to be pound overweight. <laughs> let me tell you something. Yes and no. I mean, is Los Angeles going to be the same when this is over? First no, all, thank every, God, no. Everybody's no. gone. Yeah. And um, also, like, honestly, like, can we just get real about really fucking skinny people and how utterly fucking miserable that life has to be? It's just, I cannot. I really, I'm not interested. Bring me some fat people. I'm. I know. I, I totally agree because this guy. If I see a new taco stand, I have to stop. I have to pull over. Even if I that just is supporting eat the local economy, my friend. You are a generous soul, <laughs> is what you are. I'm. I'm in all in favor. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. If I see an uh, an article that says, "Hey, Southern California, the best cheeseburger is in Downey." I'll fucking get in the car and I'll drive down. What what else are you doing right now? There's that is a whole that is a that is a perfect reason to leave your home. I can't think of anything smarter. And by the way, like what I realized is that I've now so I had a pregnancy meal that I was like when I was pregnant, it was what I wanted, and it was at the cheesesteak from Phil's Deli in the middle of the farmers market, the original farmers market, and then coffee chip ice cream from Bennett's. Okay, which is also very good ice cream, and it's expensive, not as expensive, and it's real fucking ice cream, and they have chunks. Okay, I'm saying that. So I would get that whenever I was, you know, both times I've been pregnant, many times during the pregnancy. I've just gone back to that being like my meal. It's not a pregnancy meal anymore. Now it's just like, do you want your special lunch? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, had it many times. Big giant cheesesteak and coffee chip ice cream. And my kids are like, that's what you used to eat when you were pregnant. I'm like, yep, now I just eat it every damn time we're here. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hey, people, uh, George's uh, hamburger stand on the corner of First and Soto. uh, That's my call for you. Get in your car and get on that. 52nd Street was released in 1978 and became Billy Joel's first album to peak at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. Joel tried to give the album a fresh sound, hiring various jazz musicians to differentiate it from his previous albums. 52nd Street was the first of four Billy Joel albums to top the Billboard charts, and it earned him two more Grammys. 
three songs reached the top 40 in the U.S. My Life, Big Shot, and Honesty. Oh, such a lonely Hardly ever heard. Yeah. Beautiful. You know, yeah. And I know that I hated Honesty then because it made me feel something. And you're not allowed to feel when you're a young Irish Catholic person. You have sure. to suppress, suppress, suppress. But now, after all this time, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much from my childhood that I finally understand now that I realize that it's okay to emote. Oh, I had a revelation like that. Speaking of musical theater, this is kind of one that sort of brings to mind. So in the show A Chorus Line, one of the most famous uh, songs that became a pop hit as well was, you know, is Kiss Today Goodbye, um, the Kiss Today Goodbye, the sweetness and the sorrow. That song I thought was a love song. I thought it was a love song about, you know, saying goodbye to your lover. That song is so not about that. It is about, it is about the passion of being an artist in that, in the show, in the case of the show, it's about being a dancer and knowing that you will not be able to sustain a life as a dancer for your entire life. You will get too old, you will get injured, you will have to leave that artistic part of your life behind and you will have to treasure the time you had with it and be grateful and say goodbye to it and have no regrets. What I did for love, that's what it's called, what I did for love. And um, I didn't realize that's what the song was about until I went to the Hollywood Bowl uh, a couple of years ago and saw it and now was well into my forties and was like, Oh my God, I had to, my comedy career. I have to say goodbye to how sweet it was to go out five days a week and bomb in front of audiences. And now I don't do that because I have kids and I write in my room and I don't, it's okay. I have no regrets. That was a really special time. Like, you know, it's very interesting. Like, I really related to it as an artist. Anyway, glad we had that talk. <laughs> <laughs> don't, you th- don't you think now that looking back, we realize, like, all the songs, especially the songs listed that, that were written in the city of Los Angeles are, and New York are basically, love me, love me, love me, please. Please love me. Please don't leave me. Please don't betray me. Oh, yeah. Please, dear God, do not betray me like my parents betrayed me. Mm-hmm. Please love me. I'll do anything I, I possibly can uh-huh. to make you love me. Uh-huh. We don't come here because we're all satisfied. No. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's like a great line from the musical Chicago. Uh Oh, tell me. Because, you know, uh, that's showbiz. We didn't get enough love in our childhoods. Like, it's just all very simple. It's all very simple. We are, um, uh, we run to Los Angeles from other places because uh, we are looking to feed our souls with the empty validation of strangers. (laughs) Well, I, I, my superpower here in the city of LA is the ability to see a woman who grew up in an alcoholic home from a mile away. Uh, uh, that's, just, <laughs> that's just, did you know I, me? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a, it's just a power I have. And I, and I just want to wave and go, Hey, I see you. I, I see you. Hi, welcome. I hope everything is going okay. It's, it feels like that's every one here. Like you, 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 you do better. It'd be more impressive if you picked out people that weren't like right. from dysfunctional homes. Well, the, there's a part of Mar Vista that that where all those people live. Got it. You know. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Did you take the love of musical theater to the next level to college? No, because I grew, okay. I grew up with a very. Um, I didn't understand that. 
you could pursue it as a Mm. professional. It Mm. didn't seem that anyone in the area I was from pursued anything fun. So I thought being in a college led to uh, information that you gained to do something not fun to be an adult and sustain your life. That was the pattern that was laid out. That was the path. That seemed like the path. That was what everybody around me seemed to be doing. Um, although they didn't think of it as not fun. So I think that's where we differed. Cause I was like, really, you're going to go and you're going to, you're going to major in, you're going to do psych major and then, or business on purpose. You don't even seem sad about that. Like you're just doing that. And your parents are psyched. Cause that's, I mean, of course they are. You know, everybody seemed very academic um, and very uh, practical. And anything that seemed not those things seemed very dangerous and wrong and scary. So I wound up going to Boston University. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually did get into the theater program, but after summer orientation, I got completely freaked out. And I was like, this doesn't seem like the right thing to do. This doesn't seem like how you become that adult that pays for things. And so I switched over to communications, which by the way, is just a fake way of, you know, I mean, that's just like, it's still, it's fun and watching movies and like trying to make your own independent films, but it seemed somehow more practical so I could get away with it. So I did that. And then, <laughs> I mean, you know, the big, the, the crazy story, which is that, you know, I loved doing improv in college. I was like, okay, well, I found my people. That's what I wanted to do. I found the improv group and that was super fun. And I didn't realize, but as soon as I found improv, I said, that's what I want to do for my career. There's not, it's not a job. You can't really, unless you're Wayne Brady, then improv, and even that, he doesn't even do that alone. He does other things too. But I thought that's what I want to do. I enjoy that. I like that. And so after I graduated college, I thought, well, I, I know I'm going to try to find a job in some kind of broadcasting or television or support, you know, some sort of, um, work where I would sit at a desk and maybe help produce something. But before I do that, it's the summer. So maybe I could do summer stock. Cause that seemed like something that people do for the summer. Um, so I went and I went to this cattle call audition, which used to be a big thing in the Northeast. It might still be, but it's the New England theater conference auditions. And you go and you do a monologue and you sing and you perform for, you know, maybe a hundred or 200, 300 different theaters all over the New England for summer stock. Now, because I didn't stick with that acting degree, I was not very good. I could improvise, but I was a shitty singer and a shitty actress. And I got two job offers and one was for children's theater and one was for something called the Sterling Renaissance Festival, which Uh I I looked at the brochure and I said, this is Shakespeare in the park. Awesome. I'm going to do Shakespeare in the park. This was also just before the internet happened. So there was no way to research what is a Renaissance festival. It is not Shakespeare in the park. Nothing said that. So I borrowed my dad's car and I drove up to upstate New York, six hours away for the summer and got to what was a Renaissance festival to work as an improviser, like an, like a interactive theater artist. Again, not Shakespeare in the park. Now people know this. I think that Renaissance festivals are very different. Um, but at the time it was like, I had uncovered a layer of the world that I didn't know existed. It was like finding another country and I was, I described my experience as private Benjamin at the Renaissance festival. Like here's this nice Jewish girl with like her, you know, degree showing up, you know, a completely useless degree in communications 
who needs that at the Renaissance Festival? No one needs to know how to operate a, a Bolex camera. Um, so here I was at the Renaissance Festival and I stayed and loved it. And it opened up an entirely different career path. And I then chronicled my weird adventures at the Renaissance Festival 25 years later in a show called American Princess that nobody has heard of or seen. However, you can see it. Okay, pandemic viewers, are you excited for your next binge opportunity? 10 episodes. It's a, it's almost, it's an, it's like 45 minute episodes, 10 of them. You can buy the whole series, one series for $19.99 on Amazon prime, which sucks that you have to pay for it, but it comes out to two bucks an episode. And I swear it is really funny. And it is a complete one season, uh, series of television that I'm super proud of. And it is basically about a young socialite who is a little bit fancier than I was, who winds up at the Renaissance festival by mistake. And I have great respect for the Renaissance festival. I have great uh, I know, I know, by the way, that it's super silly and ridiculous and worth making fun of. And yet I also hold it in my heart as a very special place. So I'm on both sides. I know that it's ridiculous. The show is super funny. There's so much to unpack there. <laughs> that is tremendous. People go watch American <laughs> Princess. But let me just ask one simple question. Did you feel like you had found a tribe when you were there? I found a tribe when I got to the Renaissance Festival because I think, look, I've talked a lot about my summer camp experience here and my love of Billy Joel. I think in some ways I've been trying to recreate the summer camp thing many times in my adult life. And the Ren Fair was the first time that I actually got to really do that. I, I, I got to the Ren Fair and it was, you know, close to nature, large group of people, communal living, a lot of spirit. And it felt singing together, lots of singing, group singing. And it felt like everybody was there for a, a very h- highly enjoyable, happy experience. And I, you know, I, I could listen, we need a whole other podcast to talk about how I feel about Renaissance festivals in general. And I also know quite a lot about the history of Renaissance festivals um, in this country. And it is a very American phenomenon, kind of born out of the hippie movement. But so are camps. So, um, yes, I did find a tribe there. Um, and thanks to Facebook, I still have contact with a lot of those tribesmen, you know, from there, it was weird. I wound up working in what is essentially the corporate version of Renfair, which is working at Walt Disney world for two years. Yeah, I wound sure. up, yeah, mm-hmm. I moved to Orlando with my Renfair boyfriend and worked in the parks for a long time, um, doing improv. And it turns out that I was doing improv as a career, which is super weird and what I wanted, ultimately. Well, well making more money than some young kid just doing UCB in New York and Los Angeles. Well, UCB was not yet a thing. I actually, of course. So while I was in Orlando for those two years, so this is like 96, 97, UCB was just setting up in New York City. Hadn't heard of them. But I moved to New York City from Orlando because after almost two years, I was like, I'm 24 and I'm living in Orlando and that's not yeah. what I want. Yeah. Um, and I think... If by the way, no diss on Orlando, it's a super weird kind of oddly culturally more specific place than you'd think. Um, but I wanted to try other places. So I wound up, um, moving to New York and I had a phone number in my pocket for an improviser who had contacts in Orlando 
And I called him and he said, Hey, you should join up with Chicago city limits, which was the improv club there. He's like, also there's this new group in town. They're really taking over. They were amazing. They're the upright citizens brigade. So I started taking classes right away and I had saved enough money at Disney that I didn't have to get a job for the first few months that I lived in New York. So I was able to just do improv and it was life-changing. And that's kind of, you know, it's a long time ago now, but it was a really special time. That was a much, that was how I started in comedy. Well, the, the, because of my friends and some of them have been on this podcast, whether it's Brian Stack or Matt Walsh or, oh, I, I mean, so many, Gene Villapeak, so many people, oh, love did, Laura Kraft, blah, blah, blah. The, best. the, the mid nineties kids to come out of Chicago and New York, it's just a bonkers. It's just a bonkers um, group of talent. Quick question about improvising at the Renaissance Fair. Yes, sir. Am I envisioning correctly? Are you walking through the crowd and going, good day, my lady. Good day, good, good sir. Day, Is good that- sir. I'd be the boisterous Bonaroba, your dutiful daughter of the Sheriff of Warwickshire. My name be Cornelia Valentine. Know you, for thou hast seen her majesty the queen, hast thou? Yes, it was a lot of that. Um, a lot of it was funnier than that. You are Cornelia Valentine, though. I was Cornelia Valentine. Um, But yes, uh, there was, uh, you know, so listen, there, yes, the short answer is yes. Yep. God bless you. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Billy Joel released his seventh studio album, Glass Houses, in 1980 in an attempt to further establish himself as a rock and roll artist. This release featured It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Billy Joel's first single to top the Billboard 100 chart. You may be right, don't ask me why, and sometimes a fantasy is also on that record. Billy Joel won a Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance for his work on Glass Houses. The Nylon Curtain was released in 1982, and that album is among Billy Joel's most ambitious efforts, and he's openly acknowledged that it's the recording I'm most proud of and the material I'm most proud of. Nylon Curtain hits include Allentown and Pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do that's that's the beginning of that's the beginning of modern Jamie is UCB in New York. Yeah, is that where you met? Is that where you met your husband? I did in Amy Poehler's level two. I met my husband. Oh, uh, time out. <laughs> back, back it's a, the truck it's just up. a super fun name drop. <laughs> no, no, no. But but uh, but I know that that is the case. That's what was happening in New York. That yeah. all of these insane people that everyone. Yeah, did. Matt Walsh and Amy and Matt Besser and Ian were teaching at that time, and so we took with them. And yeah, I met John in level two. Mm-hmm. And That's he, we were fucking amazing. Yeah, we were friends for a really long time, and then he'll tell you that I attacked him in a cab. But that, um, yeah, it's probably, that is what happened. I mean, were you guys on a team together after the level two we, class? We performed. Yeah. We performed for like two years, uh, on a, in a show called feature feature with like all Rob Corddry and Scott Armstrong, Brian Husky, Seth Morris. Yeah. It was super fun. And Will Burson who just wrote a movie that's coming out. That's going to be crazy big. Um, this new Ryan Coogler movie about the Black Panthers. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of success in that group, actually. Yeah, um, it's it's really it's really crazy. I know that all the young kids pre-pandemic were moving to Los Angeles and New York just to do UCB. Yeah, I mean, to get that on their resume. I know, right? I mean, it, it, was, yeah. it was so much smaller when we were there. Like, we the theater was they didn't have their own theater yet. 
Um, I mean, it was, it was how everything is at the beginning, you know, it was raw and rough and, you know, we were painting the green room and it was, it was a great time. It was a great time to be there. I'm super grateful for it. You know? Yeah. Um, I chose to, I, and I've said this on the podcast before, apologies to the regular listeners that, um, instead of staying in Chicago to do improv at second city or improv Olympic or moving to New York, which just seems so crazy. Cause from Northwestern, it was all the musical theater people that I didn't get into Northwestern, by the way, I desperately wanted to go to Northwestern. I applied there. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Um, but I, I would say I came out here right away. I didn't well, have that because I was cocky. And I thought that uh, I'm like, if David Schwimmer can get on Monty, <laughs> well, but you I mean, know, come you know, on. Look, John and I have talked about this a lot. Um, we always wondered if we had left New York too early in a lot of ways because New York, it, it really, UCB, of course, had exploded by the time we left in those five years, five and a half, six years that we were there. But we, like, they didn't, they, they were still in their small theater. They hadn't moved to their bigger theater yet. And when we moved to LA, I understand it was, it was a, not a barren landscape of comedy, but it was very specific. It was like the comedy store had its population and then anything else improv wise was really kind of how New York was before the UCB got there. It was just slim pickings, except the groundlings and the groundlings is so small. By the time you get to perform and get any sort of notoriety at the groundlings, you're at the top of a very, like you're at the top of a triangle, not a pyramid. And, not and, a and, you fought your way through politics. Yes, it's and you've encouraged older kids in the groundlings to like you. That's right, and it's pull a, you along. It's a very different business model. It was a different business model, and there wasn't as much real estate. There just wasn't. Like you know, that was the difference. I think you know. Look, groundlings is amazing. It's produced incredible people. Second City is amazing. It's produced incredible people. UCB really amazing has produced a lot because their business model allowed for it to get bigger and bigger and bigger and gave performance space and opportunity to pretty much everybody. So yeah. it's just a different way of doing things. There wasn't like a tiny little company that got all the attention once you rose to that place. Like everybody got to branch off and do their own thing. So it was like this tree growing with all these branches as opposed to like a, a Christmas tree with just the star on top. So, um, you know, yeah. but, but early, I, early in mid early in mid nineties, LA, you had to rent a space at Santa Monica and Wilcox. Like that's, that's we would do that, and then pre internet, you had to fax right, people right. To, with your dumb flyer for right. Gene hates Larry or Crash the Bench or whatever your show well, was. And that's and when we got to LA and realized in two thousand, like the very beginning of two thousand two, we were like, oh wow, we're kind of starting over out here. And it was three more years before the UCB came out in a giant exodus and built the theater. But what I've often said is like, at the time it was super hard. And I was going to like Westwood Bruco to do, uh, you know, open mics. And I tried stand up, and I was like trying to do stuff at improv Olympic where they were really aggravated by all, you know, some of the UCB coming in all cocky and stuff, which I totally understand looking back. But like, I was like, and I tried a little stuff at the groundlings and I look back at that time. And the interesting thing I will say is that those three years, I really got to know a lot of the LA comedy people in a way that I look at some of the people that came out from UCB three years later, only because they had a safe space to land at the UCB theater and they don't have quite the same people. Like they, they have, they have each other. 
But I feel very fortunate that like in those three years, I actually, I got to know the Chicago people. I got to know the LA people. I got to know a lot of those faces. And I'm so grateful for that time period when I was also allowed to like get up and fall on my face, trying different things. I mean, it was hard and it was a little depressing because I was like, oh shit, I left my house, my safe place where I felt like a comedy, not a star, but I felt like I knew what I was doing coming out here. And it was a little scary, but I look back and I'm super grateful. Well, I'm grateful for like, my world was fully formed when I moved out here. Cause the Chicago thing in LA is crazy. Yeah. They're, they've been coming forever. Yep. Whether it's Steppenwolf or second city or Northwestern or DePaul or whatever, they're all here. We moved into a fully formed world. Cause I moved out here with my closest friends from college. Yep. And I'll just give you one little improv snippet from the early nineties that is so evocative of what it was like. Uh, and then I'll read sort of my last little bit about Billy Joel, but uh, my friends and I did a show uh, at in the space of Barry's pizza on third street because they let us, you know, at night. And there was one night when there was about five people in the crowd and two of them were Marissa Tomei and um, Holy Christ. Why am I blanking on my cousin Vinny? It's Marissa Tomei and it's Joe Pesci. Yeah. So five of the people in the audience are them because <laughs> one of the people in the show that I did was Marissa's brother, Adam. But that's the magic of Los Angeles because you never know when that crazy shit is going to happen. All right, here we go. We're rounding third base. An Innocent Man was released in 1983. And this Billy Joel album served as an homage to Billy's favorite genres of music from the 1950s, such as rhythm and blues and doo-wop. The album featured Uptown Girl, Tell Her About It, and The Longest Time. An Innocent Man remained on the U.S. pop album charts for 111 goddamn weeks, becoming Billy Joel's longest charting studio album, Behind the Stranger. After releasing The Bridge and Stormfront in 1986 and 89, respectively, Billy Joel released his 12th studio album, River of Dreams, in 1993. He never stopped touring. He's a fucking legend. Billy Joel, any final thoughts about William Martin Joel? Uh, yes. I've seen him uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. I've seen him at, um, I want to say, the big uh, arena in Foxborough in Massachusetts. I have seen him in Madison Square Garden. Um, He is always a showman and a delight. Um, And actually, I'm pretty sure I saw him, because he now, well, before the pandemic, he was doing, like, monthly shows at Madison Square Garden. Um... That's got to be religious. Yeah. I, I, I envision I've only, the only concert I've ever seen at Madison Square Garden was Iron Maiden. <laughs> which I'm super proud of, but I would imagine seeing Bruce or Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. That's, that's, that's the church. It's, that is, that's it. It's pretty great. One thing I will say is that you, I, I wasn't super happy about the demographic that I was in uh, with the crowds at Madison Square Garden to see Billy Joel. It was a lot of like definite Long Island Trumpy ish ish ish. But uh, I don't care. I have my own special relationship to William, and, and I assume he knows um, what I'm talking about. Um, and I uh, will say one thing that's very funny. Two things. One thing. So when I was whatever, 15, 16, I wanted to, I wanted to go see him in Foxborough or it was Great Woods, one of those places in Massachusetts, and my dad would not let me go alone with my friend, Anne. So he drove us, and he scalped a ticket, and we had really shitty seats, and I had binoculars, and I could see that my dad was in the second row, 
having the greatest <laughs> night of his life. That was the Stormfront tour, which really pissed me off. So that happened. And then 20 some odd years later, you know, I went and got Madison Square Garden tickets for my husband's cousin and myself as a gift. And we went and we had this great time. And we saw Madison Square Garden. The seats were fine. My parents went several months later, got tickets the same day, and we're in the, like, the fifth row. So my dad continues to best me when it comes to Billy Joel, and it's really fucking annoying. What's your dad's name? Sam. Fuck you, Sam Denbo. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> Super annoying. American Princess, Amazon Prime, just go fucking buy it and... Just listen to the words of Jamie Denbo as they wash over your body. Did you ever sneak in and do a bit part in the show? I did. That you created. I played okay. a character named Aunt Vajanya. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> yep, I sure do. All you did was hit home runs today, Jamie. Oh that's my it. god! That's all. That's all you did. Well, I had a really good pitcher. <laughs> still got it i still got the, oh, I still got the muscle even though i never go out of my house ever anymore okay. or anything it, is there anything that you want to promote i truly just want to promote american princess i'm so proud of it and it, it's such a shame because it was on lifetime which was the wrong network for the show it is not a lifetime show and that's part of the problem is that they knew it wasn't a show for them um, I produced it with Genji Cohan of Weeds and Orange is the New Black. So you know it's cool and dirty and fun and silly. So uh, please go to Amazon Prime and watch it. You'll love it. Um, yeah, please go to Amazon Prime and watch American Princess. And you tell your husband, John Ross, Bowie, that he is going to be talking about the Ramones with me eventually. Great. I'd love Very to soon. talk about it with someone fucking out. <laughs> <laughs> ah, and to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, subscribing, listening to the Brando cast, telling your friends we are growing exponentially. We've got so many great guests coming down the line. As always, the Brando cast is produced by Richard Cheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens.